0: Hey, everybody, it's David Pluff Welcome to Campaign HQ. Uh, well, it seems like the last week has really been like a decade uh, in terms of news events. Obviously, the untimely and, and uh, passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to affect not just this election, but our country uh, for decades to come. I'll come back to that. Um, you know, Donald Trump has intensified his campaign events, Really, they look like super spreader events, uh, larger and larger crowds, no masks. He's now making fun of people who wear masks, uh, despite his CDC director saying, you know, 90% of Americans are still vulnerable to catching COVID We passed the 200,000 mark in in terms of fatalities uh, just in the last few days. Um, And we have a presidential debate uh, right around the corner. So uh, an eventful week in this 2020 campaign. Um, I'd start with the Supreme Court uh, fight. Uh, Nobody knows how this will play out in the campaign. I think it's pretty clear, unfortunately, that the Republicans are likely now to confirm uh, Trump's pick, which he's going to announce this Saturday before the election. Trump, by the way, is saying very clearly he wants that ninth justice to settle election disputes. Um, so, uh, you know, he's not even hiding what they're up to here, uh, which is uh, even if he loses the election, I think we need to prepare ourselves um, for the fact that he – now, the question is, is he going to join, be joined by the entire Republican Party and judiciary? I'd still like to think not, uh, but is he is he going to try and invalidate the elections with legal challenges? With uh, there's reports today that uh, he may uh, his campaign may try and uh, create rival states of electors uh, uh, for the Electoral College to challenge the election results. So this nightmare of Trump and getting rid of him it's going to be as hard as um, as we imagine. And then harder. Uh, we're just not going to get any breaks here. He's not going to go quietly into the night. But I do think from a from a political standpoint, this Supreme Court situation, should help Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, and Democrats up and down the ballot. Why? Well, one, I just have always assumed, as you know, listening to this podcast, that Donald Trump's going to get great turnout. He's going to get his people out. Um, So I'm not sure how much more there is for him to gain. I do think this can be motivating for Democrats who weren't sure that whether they were going to vote. But I think the stakes of this election, you know, if, 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 Trump is able to nominate uh, another conservative jurist and, and that person follows through on the following uh, you know eliminating uh, the ACA, which means 130 million people with pre-existing conditions may lose coverage certainly pay more for it. Uh, tens of millions of people will lose health care coverage. a woman's right to choose uh, may be uh, now illegal uh, in this country. Uh, n- no doubt it will side with polluters this new constituted court so our air and our water um, and and all the health, Uh, outcomes that come from that uh, will be really severely disadvantaged uh, for decades, voting rights, uh, you name it. So the stakes, I think, of this election, were, which were already enormous, have only grown so. And I think the stakes being as large as possible and what a second Trump turn could mean um, helps Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And I think that's uh, a key part of their debate strategy, has to be continue to raise these stakes. Um, you're going to have to throw some punches, but not you know, exist solely in the mud with Trump and Pence. You want to raise the stakes and, and make sure people understand what's happening in this country and what could happen to it. The Supreme Court uh, nomination has also created a lot of uh, more discussion about if the Democrats win the White House and if the Democrats win the Senate, two big ifs still. We all have to work hard to make sure that's the case. Um, And they could have the votes for this. You know, should they get rid of the filibuster? Should, if so, should they expand the court? If so, should Puerto Rico um, and uh, the District of Columbia be admitted as states? Uh, You know, should we, um, in a purely partisan way, do a lot of things on energy and climate and health care that we've waited a long time? And I'm of the view that um, the answer is yes, but only if uh, Democrats um, take full advantage of that. I talked to Claire McCall about this topic a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I think her concern is, you know, the Republicans in a non-filibuster world, they will have a laundry list of things that they've wanted to do if they control all branches of government, and they will do them all. They don't care what anybody says. Uh, and so, listen, if the Democrats uh, do move forward, if they, if they win all these elections, um, with expanding the court, uh, with uh, statehood for Puerto Rico uh, and D.C., uh, with so many other important pieces of legislation, economically, health, uh, climate, which almost assuredly would be either are exclusively uh, democratic or almost entirely democratic because I think the Republican party will hold together in opposition whatever Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want to do um, Uh, You know, it only works is that they do it all, which means, you know, the New York Times editorial page and some progressive, uh, uh, you know, institutionalists, I guess, and and others will say, you shouldn't do this. Or if you do this, the Republicans are going to do something else in 2025. And you just have to ignore all that. So I'm of the view that let's maximize election wins and then let's maximize the change that can come uh, because of those election wins. So it'll be fascinating to see how that question uh, plays out. I, I think generally my experience has been Republicans expect Democrats to blink they just do they expect us to back down when there's criticism and so this would be a time I think for no blinking <laughs> just staring straight ahead and doing where it's right uh, for the country um The debate is next Tuesday. I'll be speaking to you on this podcast um, post-debate, and and I'll certainly have some thoughts there. Um, But, you know, this debate um, has only been made more important by the Supreme Court uh, nomination fight, been made more important by reports that Trump, you know, has real plans to try and steal the election, made more important by Trump this week saying um, that really no one's been affected by uh, COVID-19, even though we all have. And uh, we've had hundreds of thousands of people lose their lives, millions get sick. So many kids uh, not able to learn. You've got people who've lost their jobs and their their income. So uh, a terrible uh, statement by Trump, um, even for him. And I'd expect Joe Biden to make him pay a price for that. But but this debate is enormous next week. And and my view is is if Joe Biden comes out of that. Um, you know, showing that he's tough enough to take on Trump. Um, I'd like to see him dominate Trump, if that's possible. Uh, People having a clear view um, that he's got a better plan, uh, and they have more confidence in him uh, to get us uh, out of this pandemic situation uh, over the next 12 months, uh, that he's got better plans on the economy uh, for them and their family, uh, that he'll be a stronger leader. Health care needs to be front and center uh, in all four of these debates, but certainly next week. So uh, I know all of you listening, this podcast, um, you know, are, uh, you know, political junkies, or at least uh, are thinking about becoming one. So you'll be watching, but um, it is going to be one of the more important moments in in American political history, in my view, Uh, because if Biden has a really strong debate, it doesn't mean the rest of them don't matter, but I think they'll matter less. And I think he will cement a lot of the leads and gains he has in this election. Uh, If he doesn't have a a great debate, uh, I think he'll have the opportunity then um, in the second debate to recover Kamala Harris debate with Mike Pence then becomes even more important. Um, but but I think um, he can really, I think, um, seize um, a real advantage in this race with a strong performance next Tuesday. So let's all be, uh, you know, thinking good thoughts as Joe Biden takes that stage uh, with, uh, with Donald Trump, who For all his idiocy and all his rantings and all his lying, Um, you know, he's a political performer. He loves the theatricality of it. So I don't think he'll be prepared in a traditional sense. Um, But my guess is he's looking forward to the debate. Most incumbent presidents and most incumbents generally, um, you know, probably would rather not debate. I think Trump is looking forward to it. Um, And so the other thing Biden, I'm sure, will bring is that same relish. Like there's nowhere he'd rather be uh, than on that stage uh, with Donald Trump and taking a fight to him. Um, So we're really excited about our guest uh, today. Uh, We're going to talk to Karine Jean-Pierre. Many of you know her. uh, She was a political... Uh, analyst for many years on MSNBC. Uh, she was the political director at MoveOn. Uh, until recently, she served leadership roles in the Obama campaigns uh, and White House, uh, and in campaigns before that, uh, came over to the Biden campaign in May. Uh, and then just shortly after she joined the Biden campaign, was named as the chief of staff uh, to Kamala Harris. Uh, and so we're going to talk to Kareen about Um, Kamala Harris's strategy over the next few weeks in terms of campaign activity, uh, that one really critical vice presidential debate, uh, and generally just talked about how the Biden-Harris campaign uh, is organizing in these battleground states, how they see the Supreme Court nomination uh, affecting the fight, what their thoughts are on the post-election period, uh, which sadly has to be uh, a factor. So uh, I think you'll enjoy this look under the hood with Karine Jean-Pierre into the the Biden campaign generally uh, and Kamala Harris's role in it specifically. Karine Jean Pierre, thank you for joining Campaign HQ.
1: Absolutely, there would be. There's no other place I would rather be right now with, with well, the you, <laughs> phenomenal, brilliant David Plouffe. So, I'm. Um, thank you for having me.
0: You're overly kind to say that, uh, and thank you for what you're doing for your country and your democracy. Uh, you know, agreeing to to jump into the Biden campaign and uh, and lead the effort on support of uh, Kamala Harris.
1: Thank you. I mean, it's it's a pleasure, um, and an honor to be doing this. It really feels like I'm I'm serving. Um, and as you know you've been you've been here many times before and uh, you do this because you believe in it you do this because you're passionate about it and be, and you do it because you feel that you can be part of of making change. And, um, and, you know, as, as you know, this is the most consequential election of our lifetime. And I, I just could not sit back and, and not be part of this. And honestly, not to talk about myself too much. Um, but Honestly, I think about um, my, I, I tell this story a lot because it really is the reason why I decided to do this. I have a six-year-old. Um, she just started first grade. Clearly, she's in virtual learning like many other kids. And we're lucky. We have the resources to be able to provide what she needs. But there are kids out there who are, you know, they have to go to work with their parents in the middle of this COVID-19 or they stay in the car while their parents are working inside of, um, you know, their office or whatever wherever they are um, in their work building and they have to learn from the car. And so this is, this is where we are. And I think about her and I think about her peers. I think about kids who, who don't have the resources. And I think to myself, like, we can't, we have to do better. We have to leave a better country for her and our grandkids and, you know, all the, you know, all the children out there who are going to be, who are going to inherit what's happening right now. And, you know, our lives are on it, are on it, you know, they're on the line, our lives are on the line.
0: Well, Corrine, that's such a powerful observation. It does you know, when when Trump earlier this week said that COVID had affected virtually no one, um, you know, rightly people went to the 200,000 plus that have died and the millions that have been sick. But you just mentioned, you know, the effect on millions of American families, um, you know, kids in cars, kids not being able to go to school, parents uh, stressed as they've never been out of work. It, it's just outrageous to have a leader like that. So I want to go under the hood a little bit and then yeah, talk a little absolutely. bit about the campaign. So you mentioned, you know, the decision um, why you decided to do this. Now, Kamala Harris, To someone you knew, you had that memorable moment on the stage with her (laughs) when uh, when when uh, when someone uh, approached her and you bravely stood up to to to, you know protect her. But so it's not somebody you had worked with intensively. Um, Talk about you know what it's like because the Biden campaign. You know, even though they had only been the nominee for a period of time before you joined, um, had been going for over a year and a half. um, What is it like to kind of join a campaign at that stage? You have to build a team around yourself to support Kamala Harris. Just talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is definitely going under the hood. Look, I joined the Biden campaign in May and uh biden uh joe biden the vice president had asked me to join the campaign about a year and a half ago i couldn't do it for many many reasons but i promised him when he's the nominee and we're close to closer to the election that i would i would be happy and honored to uh, honored to serve and i did i joined in may and so i was a senior advisor at the time Mm -hmm. and um and when I joined, it was like the talk about the running mate. Who's the running mate going to be? And he had he had said long before in the primary that his running mate was going to be a woman, um, wanting to meet the moment and wanting to make sure that he had a you know a a a ticket that represented the country. And so there was a lot of talk. Right? Uh, there was a, a lot of speculation, probably too intense of a speculation, and the The Biden campaign, they make they start building the team as to uh, for the running mate. So it's a it's a very different process in the sense of like the running mate doesn't come in and build the team. The team is actually built for them, as you know, as you know, Pluff. And so uh, you know, you hire a comms director, you hire a scheduler, you hire. All of the basic, you know, the needs um, that the, I guess the infrastructure that the the running mate would need and then you build out from there. So I actually um, was not, I did not know I was going to be the running mate chief of staff until... Probably days before, <laughs> uh, days before did, the running mate was actually announced, right. and the vice president himself called me and he said, "Hey, I need you to do, you know, do me a favor. I think you would be great." And I didn't know. I mean, uh, you know, I had. Be- David I didn't know who the running people we had chosen I certainly didn't ask. Um, and I said, you know, and you know this when when you're asked to serve,
0: <laughs> there's yes. only one answer, yes. There's yes, only yes. one
1: answer, yes. And so I said yes, not knowing who he who he was was uh, going to pick. And then days later he made the announcement and I knew and I was like, okay, and I knew hours before um and uh, I remember thinking, "Wow, this is you know this is great." Kamala Harris, who has uh, an amazing record, and um, who and also and also just making history uh, by by being the first black woman on a tick on a, on a ticket, uh, a black woman with Indian heritage, um, and who you know who has an incredible record, as I just mentioned. Um, and I just thought, "Wow, this is this is this is a great ticket," and I think this is going to be great, and and it showed it energized and enthused uh, the ticket people really excited about the history making of it Um, and uh, it was just a great partnership and so and so the moment I was announced I was actually announced the same day that she was announced then I was able to actually uh, take over the team that was put together and and start going and it was quick it was I was announced she was announced now the team knows that I'm part of, that I'm part of, that I'm the chief of staff. And then it is basically, we head to Delaware to make that, uh, to make the the speech of the, you know, the, that first speech of the running mate. Um, and then, you know, the next thing is, is the convention, because all of this clearly leads into convention. Um, and so it's just, you just go, you just go and it's, yeah. it's a sprint. And um, it's been a sprint since with big moments. The next moment, as you can imagine, is debate, right. you know. Well, hard
0: debate. Well, you, Karine, you capture the just unrelenting pace, right? I mean, you join the campaign in May, working around the clock. Then you get asked to serve as chief of staff. You don't know who it is. Then you find out the same day, you inherit the team, and then you have to start making decisions. It's really, uh, it it's is a fly. sprint. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it really is.
1: And it's not like the way, you know, you know this, before you start a big campaign, there's like, you plan for hopefully a year <laughs> or more. Right. You lay out, you lay out like, you know, what you're thinking, the messaging, how you're going to run and what the candidate da, 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 da. I mean it, it's a big long process and there's none of that right there's none
0: or at of least that. a couple of weeks like <laughs> you literally had uh, not even a couple hours so let's talk about um, uh, you you come out of the convention uh, a great Democratic uh, convention I think um, by all accounts under grueling circumstances are certainly challenging um, and Kamala Harris is begun to spend a lot of time out in battleground states. She was in uh, Michigan yesterday. She's been there previously, Wisconsin, Florida. Talk about, um, and we'll come back to the debate, but as you look between now and November 3rd, um, is she going to be out more days than not? Um, As you know, usually pre-pandemic and presidential campaigns, the presidential candidate and the VP nominee are doing four or five stops a day, harder to do now. and, And certainly the Biden campaign, is approaching things, uh, you know, in a safe uh, and healthy way uh, compared to the super spreader events that Trump is having. But kind of what do you see the Kamala Harris outside of like the debate prep period uh, schedule looking like between now and the end?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a really great question because COVID-19 has changed everything. It really has. And and um, and you know, we're, we have to be safe. We have to listen to the experts because it's not just, just about our candidates and our staff. It's about the people that were around and making sure that they're healthy and that we're protecting them as well. And like you said, you know, you have the super spreader from Donald Trump. So we have to show that contrast and show the leadership. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris has to show what leadership actually looks like. Look, we've been, you know, we've been consistent consistently on the road over the past couple of weeks as you just mentioned David we've been uh the the, the the senator herself has been to california wisconsin pennsylvania florida michigan as you just mentioned yesterday and you know we will continue to travel as long as it's safe for us to do so and you know the the thing about this is we have 41 days uh, you know less than 40 days soon and we have to be able to engage with the, with the with people right we have but we have to do that in a really safe way and we have to do it in a way that we show a stark contrast with Trump's events and you know we're cognizant of state and local guidelines for crowds and we're not we're not going to to budge on it and you know we're committed to conti- continuing to travel and see and especially to battleground state because as you know it, it, we have to get to 270 so we're going to do that we're going to get her out there Um, we're gonna, I mean, it's all about mobilizing, engaging with, um, with voters right now. Folks are starting to vote early. And as you know, David, if, if Democrats vote early, in, in record numbers or in big numbers, we win. And so we're trying to engage with voters right now and, and encourage them to vote, encourage them to vote early, not just vote, but vote early. And And if they, you know, there are so many different requirements um, in states right now because of COVID 19. And then you have voter suppression. So we have a lot of things that we have to make sure we, that we make sure that um, we need to make sure that our, our voters, are educated, because we want to make sure that their votes are counted. And that's going to be the most critical thing right now. And so that's why, and you know, this, this is why it's, you know, we've been very strategic and very mindful and thoughtful about where our principles are going. Because like I said, people are voting right now, whether vote by mail, early in person voting, um, and folks have to make a plan. So that's kind of the strategy right now, getting people out to vote early now, now, now. Please, please, please.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think that's what is so um, challenging about this election for your campaign is it's hard enough in any campaign to get enough people to decide to vote for you. Uh, now you have to make sure that people have a plan to vote, a plan um, to vote that it? if they vote by mail, that they don't make mistakes. It It is just a layer of complexity. Now, truthfully, if people make a plan, it's super easy to vote. Go vote in person, vote on election day, vote by mail. So we shouldn't, um, uh, you know, frighten people, but you do gotta make sure that, uh, particularly if you're voting by mail, you double check. So let's talk about the debate. For a VP uh, nominee, um, even uh, more so than the convention or their first speech alongside their running mate, it's the most important um, part of the campaign for them. Um, And you only have one shot. Fascinating here because, of course, uh, the presidential candidate, Joe Biden, now has uh, both – been in two vice presidential debates and did well in yeah. both against Sarah Palin and and, and Paul Ryan. Uh, it's been reported you've got Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, playing um, uh, Mike Pence in the stand-in role. But talk about the importance of that debate, how you guys are preparing for it, and also, Kareen, I had Claire McCaskill in this podcast a couple weeks ago, and she said, you know, she was concerned about the expectations getting out of whack for Kamala. She's a great debater, but like Mike Pence has been a fine debater too. Like, <laughs> talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I, I look, I think she's right. I, I agree with the former senator. Um, it, you know, Mike Pence is a very good debater and we have to be mindful of that. And, um, you know, we have to be mindful of expectations and understand that, you know, we're dealing with someone who's very good at, at lying and not answering questions and, and, um, avoiding kind of a real conversation. And so this is what Mike Pence has done. And, um, I think that, um, Know Kamala Harris is going to be Kamala Harris. We're going to see the person, someone else who is a, a very good debater, someone else who, who knows how to prosecute the case, right, against Donald Trump, against Mike Pence, and she is going to show that contrast. Um, so, but yeah, I think that people need to be very, very mindful. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree with the senator. Like, Mike Pence is a good debater. He's very good, like I said, of being evasive, of not answering the question directly. Um, of of do you know he's he this is who Mike Pence is and that's how you know he's kind of supported and, and kind of protected uh, Donald Trump and so um, I think we're we're looking forward to it it is an important moment um, we're being you know mindful and thoughtful and uh, you know she's going to be prepared uh, to to deliver a good performance but I agree with Senator Ms. McCaskill
0: and so you know historically um, whether it's the uh, VP candidate or a presidential candidate. Um, You know, you you go somewhere, at least we certainly did, um, out in the country, you spend three or four days uh, cloistered. Now, Joe Biden, uh, you know, did that in Wilmington, um, you know, in 2008, if I recall. Uh, Barack Obama, we generally would go out in the country somewhere just to get away. (laughs) I think COVID's probably changed that a little bit too. You know, harder to go decamp with Secret Service and everything, um, you know, at a hotel. So how are you guys just, you know, are you, um, without giving away any secrets, I mean, this first, now it's interesting because you have one debate. So, you know, I'm sure she's begun practicing for it, yep. getting more familiar with yep. Pence's uh, record and how he talks about issues. Uh, will you guys do some, it's been reported that Mayor Pete will play that role. Will you guys do some formalized practice sessions?
1: I mean, look, we'll do we'll do what it's needed to to get her prepared. I can't confirm Mayor Pete.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I figured I you'd
0: say that, yes. I
1: can't say that, but- um, He's got the but, Hoosier
0: uh, thing, but yeah, right, right.
1: <laughs> I could say that, look, she, she will be prepared. Um, and uh, we want her clearly. The campaign broadly wants to make sure that she has everything that she needs, right, to prepare. Um, and you're right; COVID-19 makes this difficult. It makes the debate difficult. It makes you know talking to people, uh, voters in person, difficult. It makes us, you know, even right now, I'm talking to you in my office at my home. I should be in a Philadelphia, campaign
0: right, right, yeah,
1: right, in Philadelphia, or even on the road, mm-hmm. um, in my hotel room, talking to you or something, right? Not in not at home with 41 days to go. And so um, it, it has changed everything. So we have to be mindful. We have to be careful. We have to uh, adhere to ordinances in different states on how many people. I mean, it's just it's just a lot to, to deal with, but she will be prepared. She is looking forward to debating Mike Penn. She will make that contrast. She will do what Kamala Harris is very good at doing is prosecuting the case.
0: I'm curious, Corinne, you, you've been around Politics for a long time, and I think um, what's interesting and and very difficult about Trump and Pence. So, you know, if you look back in 2012, the first Obama-Romney debate, which was such a disaster for us, it was a disaster for a lot of reasons. We didn't prepare him well. He didn't want to be there, (laughs) and that was kind of evident to people. But also, Romney just kind of you know blatantly lied about his tax and economic plan, Um, and I think that took Obama by surprise. Now, compared to Trump and Pence. Uh, you know, Romney was the picture of of, uh, honesty and (laughs) forthrightness. How do you prepare for Trump and Pence? Because it is not just Trump. You know, it's almost like preparing for Jell-O with a scorpion embedded in it, right? They just lie and lie and lie. And it's hard to prepare. Like, you know, know, normally in a debate, you're like, well, they're going to say this about their record or their idea, and this is where I think they're wrong. And they're going to, you know, then come back and say, well, you're wrong about this. These guys you don't know where they're going to go with any question.
1: Yeah, it's so true and you don't you can't be fact checking them, right? That's it's right. not it's not the job. Of the candidate to be fact checking them, um, it's our job, right, as a campaign, as as reporters and the moderators, right, to to make sure they're being fact checked. And I think, you know, what we have to do is make sure that a, like I keep saying, um, show the contrast and show, like, what is ha- remind people of what is happening in this moment. the
0: stakes, the stakes, right, right? right? I think
1: that is the key because they're going to avoid, I'm sure, hundred percent sure, going to avoid wanting to talk about COVID nineteen. The economy, where we are, the healthcare crisis—you know, people out of work. We just talked. I just started off talking about my six-year-old and her peers, who are many—you know—do not have broadband, do not have the resources, cannot actually learn in a way that's safe for them. Um, you know, this is Trump's America. Right, we, he loves to talk about Biden's America, but we're living in Trump's America. Where kids are not in school, people are dying. There's COVID nineteen that's being mismanaged. There are tens of millions of people who are losing their jobs and cannot. You know, it's but October first is not far. Around, it's not. It's right around the corner. People are not going to be able to pay their rent or their mortgage. Like these are the th- real kitchen table every day. Issues that we have to just keep talking about, keep leaning in on, make sure that the American people know that there is new leadership coming if they vote Donald Trump out, and that's what you know. That's what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to continue to do is to kind continue to show that contrast and not let people forget where we are in this moment, um, because the lies are going to be there, right? The lies from Trump, the lies from Pence are going to be there, and we just have to continue to not let that. Um, control that narrative and make sure that we are clear and precise about our messaging, about our plan, and what a Biden and Harris administration will look like?
0: Well, these are going to be must watch. Every presidential debate historically uh, has mattered. These may be at the top of the list, and I'd imagine both the first presidential debate and then you're the debate that you're preparing Kamala for, you know, should have record ratings. Um, and, you know, th- I think that's good because I think the stakes, the facts, you know, if you've got a lot of the people who are going to vote in this election firsthand watching, um, I think that definitely advantages, uh, you know, the Biden-Harris ticket. So let's talk about, you know, Kamala Harris is still a United States senator. We have this uh, fraudulent and enraging Supreme Court nomination process in front of us. We have uh, a lot of legal issues that could be uh, facing us both pre and post election, sadly. Um, You know, it seems like Kamala would be a unique person uh, to both be a lead spokesperson on that, to help us give us our marching orders. Do you think we'll see more of her um, out there as someone, um, you Know, talking about the stakes of the Supreme Court, um, the challenges that Trump may um, frustratingly try and bring post-election, kind of, how do you view her role in all that?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, uh, she's going to continue to be out there and talk about the stakes for sure and make that contrast for sure. Um, you know, we're talking, we're thinking, we're thinking about this, you know, this Supreme Court justice fight that's um, that's ahead of us. She sits on the Judiciary Committee. She, you know, is going to play her you know be Play her part as a senator, and and we'll be you know we'll be vocal and ask the hard questions and do what she's really good at, um, and so we'll be able to you know we'll be able to see just like you said, people are going to be watching the debate, people are going to be watching that judiciary committee hearing for sure. When and if it happens, we're we're all still waiting to see how that all plays out. And you know, as someone who was district attorney, uh, attorney general, she can speak to you know justice being. On the ballot, and how important it is, um, you know, to make sure that we have a justice system that's fair, um, that's just. And that really works for the American people. And I think for her, she is uniquely qualified uh, to do that, uniquely placed uh, to do that as someone, like I said, who has that background in history. And I, you know, one of the things too that we have to continue to talk about is, you know, ACA uh, healthcare and how the, the the Trump administration right now is taking healthcare away from tens of millions of people or trying to, and the disparities with that. You know, we If you think about, you know, the disparities and how people of color are affected, how women are affected, like these are things that she could uniquely speak to. And uh, we have to continue to speak about those issues because we don't want people to feel forgotten. And I think that's one of when you talk about the historical nature of Kamala Harris. Being on the ticket, you know, people see her and they think, oh, wow, she looks like me. She represents me. It's a voice, right. you know, it's having. It's like having a voice at the table. And so, those are all of the mm-hmm. things that I think that she will lean into and, um, you know, can really own in a way that's effective mm-hmm. for us to win. And to also lead, you know, the Biden-Harris uh, administration.
0: Yeah, we'll get to some of the challenges if you win <laughs> in a minute. So, uh, Corrine, talk generally for the campaign, less about Kamala specifically, but just for for the campaign. So, um, one of the things that is just uh, enrages me is that you guys mm-hmm. probably have to pay some attention. Again, you should just, if you win the election, you win the election. Now you have to focus on, well, we really would like to make it clear as possible early, whether November 3rd or November 4th, Florida probably being key there, that we won to make it harder for Trump you know, to declare victory. Uh, I think there's also an argument that you know you try to win every election by as much as possible. But again, just getting to 270 uh, is what this is about. But you know, do you need to win a decisive victory to make it harder for Trump to enlist his enablers in an effort to basically um, blow up the Constitution or our democracy in try and steal the election. So uh, talk about that. I mean, obviously you're just trying to get enough votes in enough places to win, but how much is that a factor for you guys as you're uh, thinking about these last 6 weeks?
1: Look, I, I agree with you. It would be it would send such a loud and resounding message if we were to win resoundingly, right? And and they like like hey, we won in such in like in such a big way that we're sending uh, a clear message to not just Donald Trump but to Republicans and that would be incredibly important and I think key in being able to move forward and do that transition of power for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, But we're just going to have to keep working, right? We have to keep working and earning every vote possible and getting people engaged and enthused and mobilized. You know, this is about mobilizing voters at this point. Uh, But look, I, I honestly think David, when you think about, you mentioned 270, I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, we are creating multiple paths to 270, the electoral college votes. And I think that's what's key. You know, I think we, yes, we, it would be great to get those numbers high, high, way up. But I think having the multiple paths gives us, uh, gives us um a a greater path to victory, I would like to think, you know, our goal has always been to ensure we, we have more states in play uh, to get to that 270. And, um, you know, and based on the stability of the race and the strong support our ticket has, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen, um, you know, the same pathways and, and expanded, if you will, footprint of states that are in play. I mean, just looking at Arizona, for example, uh, like, you know, Arizona is a battleground state, it has never been a battleground state in an election year. You know, we're we're feeling confident about states like that. So, you know, it, it is it more and more states are in play than recent history. That's a key, that's important, having multiple paths. Like and you know this better than I do, David. Like, you know, Donald Trump needs like a was it a royal flush? I don't know my my, royal, my analogy, yes. but he...
0: Now he did get, he did get four aces in 2016, but yeah. <laughs> <right>.
1: <laughs> so I think, you know, um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it, that's what's key is having multiple, multiple ways to get into 270. And we're, you know, we've been up consistently. Uh, um, if you talk about Florida, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Um, so that, that's, 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 Good, but we still have to do the work. We still have to do, uh, the work. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and we know, you know, this, like the, it's gonna tighten. And, uh, this is a polarized, uh, electorate. And so it's very different from 2016, low numbers of undecideds and third party voters. And we have a more, like I said, expanded map. Um, so I think it's, it's something that, It's key is having that, like I said, multiple paths to 270.
0: Right. So let's talk about uh, one of the ways to make sure that um, those multiple paths continue to exist and then, you know, you maximize winning as many as possible. Yep. You know, it's that um, blend of, you know, winning enough swing voters. We still have some registration to do and then turnout. Um, you know, you were obviously deeply involved in, in the battleground state and political efforts in both Obama campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, spent a bunch of time in Florida, if I recall, in North Carolina. So yep. talk about um, – Um, the challenges of, particularly on the registration and turnout side, where Um, You know, now listen, there's an interesting debate going on. Should the Biden campaign start doing more door knocking and asking people to canvass? Now, of course, that only works if, A, people are willing to do that, and B, the people at the doors are willing (laughs) uh, to have that conversation. You know, there's been some research lately that shows people aren't willing to have, you know, canvassers come to the door, but just talk about the challenges of making sure you guys hit your marks in these battleground states where either canvassing is just not going to be part of it, or if it is, it's going to happen later and, you know, won't be as, as large a volume of your voter contact.
1: Yeah. And you know this, David, like what matters about organizing is engaging with voters and having real conversations, right? And, um you know, fundamentally knocking on a door and not reaching anyone to just leave a piece of literature gets you nothing because you might as well send a piece of mail, right? Because you're not having those conversations. And COVID-19 puts us in a in a particularly difficult um, situation. There was, a, I think, a polling yesterday, political morning consult um, that noted that 63% of people were uncomfortable with campaign staff, coming up and knocking on their doors. Um, I mean, that's, and that's true, if I remember correctly, across a different region and and regions and races, and even political parties, like 68%, I think of Democrats, 56% of Republicans were uncomfortable with door knocking. So... You know, so yeah, it is incredibly difficult. It's all about the ground game, right? It's all about getting people out to vote. And so we we have adjusted our campaign tactics to meet the moment because this is what it is, right? We have to meet the moment of where we are. And we have, I think, over 2,500 staff across all of our battleground states directly engaged with voters. And they are talking to them. I mean, this is the, the, the virtual nature that we're in, but they're talking to them voters over the phone. Via text, online, and they are trying to pe- meet people where they are. So the campaign has to meet this moment, and then we have to meet voters where they are. Um, I, I believe in August alone, we did 2.5 million conversations with voters in battleground State. So that's, you know, that's kind of where we are. We are building a bigger. Digital footprint, one of the big, like the biggest that's ever been seen, uh, before in a, in a general election for a presidential campaign. We have to, you know, we have to, that's, that's kind of going to be the key here. Um, and, um, and we're going to try and continue to get our four principles out there into the different states, uh, to have safe, real conversations. And our team will do that in a safe way. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, when we win, Uh, David, on November 3rd, you know, people will be looking at this campaign and, and seeing how do you, how do you run a virtual campaign, um, in this in this moment and how it was done and so um i think we're really proud of the work that we have we have taken on but i do believe that there's still going to be a lot more work to do um but we can't do what donald trump's doing we can't be super spreader we can't have events or have people knocking on doors with no mask on and having conversation with no mask on no social distancing like that is unsafe and not true real leadership
0: well and something you know the vast majority of the American people, including you know, a sign- you know, a decent number of Trump supporters, think is the wrong approach, right? And that's, I think, both in your behavior, but also in these debates. Again, it's a way to, to raise the stakes and and really put a fine point on that. So let's talk about. Uh, you mentioned um, the core battleground states. Really, it's the core six.
1: Yep, it is. Um,
0: one of the exciting things about this election is states like Texas. Yes. Uh, states like Georgia. Georgia. Yep. Um, yep. In particular, um, look close. It doesn't mean you guys will win them, but they're going to be close. And so how do you balance, you know, the enthusiasm, excitement uh, in those states? Um, You know, as you think about Kamala Harris's time or spending resources there, um, you know, this was always a a challenge, you know, back when I used to do this, because you get excited about putting new states in play, it may help down ballot Democrats win, but you kind of have to be focused on, you know, the states that guarantee a 270. Yeah,
1: no, I think that's a that's a great that's a great point look it's interesting right because when you talk about or when you you know talk about the biden harris ticket it is really meeting the moment that we are in, right? It is a ticket that represents the different lived experiences of Americans. I mean, it truly, truly is. And um, you know, you you look at um, uh, uh, you look at the people that she's talking to and who sh- who she's reaching out to, and the you know the folks that have been supportive of of Biden for for so many years, and how he's seen as a comfort uh, comfort you know uh, you know somebody who's going to be comforting them, and they he brings like experience and, and people remember him as being Obama's number two. So it's a very interesting ticket in that way. And they are, um, you know, I, I keep saying this because it's true. They're not going to take any vote, any anyone's vote for granted. You know, we're going to work on earning everyone's vote. And, you know and you'll you'll see them out on the campaign trail traveling to states like you just mentioned Georgia you know you know North Carolina which we have to win back and you know the the blue wall that we have to win back i mean those six states that we're talking about are six states that that Donald Trump won in 2016, and so um, we just have to uh, continue to to touch uh, our base, you know, and that is young people, black people, you know, uh, people of color, um, and getting them excited and engaged. And we also have to expand. Uh, Expand our our base as well because that's the only way we're going to win is having that diverse uh, coalition, building that coalition just like Obama did in 2008 and again in 2012. And so this is what we're we're hoping to do. And Kamala, for example, she's talking to younger voters and diverse audiences about the case for Biden and Harris. When she was in Michigan, she went to Flint. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. she went to Detroit. You know, and you know we went to Milwaukee. We went to states. That needed to, that needed to to get a visit and needs to get a touch. We went to Miami um, and we talked to, we talk to um, th- we talk to people that looks like everybody in this country, right? That represents uh, this kind of wonderful rainbow that we have across the country. So we're talking, like I said, black community, Latino community. We're doing it virtually. We're doing it in in, in her travels, and we're talking about the real issues that that um, that affect working families. And this is what I was saying: like we have to remind people, like what Trump's America. It looks like, and also excite them with what real leadership could possibly look like. So it's that it's that contrast and building up the enthusiasm and excitement. And I do believe this is what the Biden Harris ticket does. It really uh, brings that enthusiasm and that leadership, and it's a it's a combination,
0: right? And we've seen enthusiasm levels for the ticket, particularly amongst younger voters, grow. And that seems to me another important imperative of, of the debates. Right? Is um, to to make sure. Sure, that continues, Kareen. You were deeply involved in 2018 when you were at move on. Yeah. we saw, uh, you know, historical turnout, largest turnout in a century. I'm sure you, like me, never thought we'd see that in congressional year elections. Uh, and you know. A lot of that was driven by uh, strong turnout amongst young voters and minority voters and Democratic-based voters who generally drop off in non-presidential exactly. years. But, you know, the Republicans also brought their turnout, uh, particularly in some of those Senate races. So how do you look at turnout? So I, I guess I have two questions mm-hmm. for you. One— do you think we'll break records? Um, uh, and if so, wh- what are you excited in terms of what you're seeing um, uh, in the Democratic coalition? And I guess, what's your view of Trump's turnout? Yeah. Because clearly, this is a guy who's shown very little interest, quite frankly, but no ability to win over swing voters. Yeah. Uh, he's clearly uh, of the view. And, you know, who knows if he believes this? He may just be popping off. But, you know, I think his campaign believes there's enough voters in some of these battleground states that look just like his MAGA base that either were unregistered or don't reliably vote that they can turn them out. So how do you view the sort of turnout game?
1: Well, I'm going to say that General Malley Dillon would want me to say this is going to be a a close election. (laughs) Yes. And it is going, we can't take anything for granted and it's going to be close um, and that we have to, you know, we have to be very mindful of that. But you make up, you bring a really good point, David. It's like, You know, you look at what Donald Trump is doing. It's the same playbook. There is nothing unique about it. There is nothing different about it. Um, And, you know, it helped him in 2016 because it was just a wild, I think, 2016. Hopefully that was the outlier, right? That's what we're hoping to prove. Um, And and just it was an outlier in a really, really bad way. Um, And then you had the Russian interference. I mean, you had so many, so much going on. You had Comey 11 days out, you know, putting out that letter. I mean, you had so much kind of... Just, just unbelievable um, scenarios that was thrown in and just mixed into this awful brew, and then he repeated it again in 2018. But he wasn't on the ballot. But he also just spewed hate and doubled down, and it's only about red meat, and it hurt him. You know, yes, and the Senate, those very red Senate states, you saw, you saw where he was, uh, where where he was effective, but in those swing areas, right, suburban women. Um, independence. I mean, some of these areas, it was amazing to see. Um, and young people, as you just mentioned, and I th- you, the people got to a point where enough was enough. Enough was enough. And they came out in a midterm election, an off-year election where Democrats just don't do well as, at all, as you just mentioned. And it was also coming out of Kavanaugh. Right. Where where are, where you saw the Democratic Party waking up and realizing elections have consequences and realizing what was at stake. And you know you can you know that SCOTUS pick of Kavanaugh really um, engage and mobilize women. So I think that it it just it just um, I I think now you look two years later to twenty twenty. You know we still we we registered tons of new voters right from twenty eighteen that you know we can get them even more engaged because twenty twenty is such is is such a a. A prime uh, election with the presidential. So there are things that I believe will be carried over of of the of the kind of 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 the of the things that we were able to do and the things that we gained by voters and and the historical numbers that we can you know kind of build from that and so i think that puts us when you think about voter turnout and i think that puts us in a really good place um for 2020 just because of all the work that was done and not just 2018 the work that was done in 2017 the work that was done in 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 of course 2018 the work that was done in 2019. And you think about like historical candidates like Stacey Abrams in Georgia and the work that she was able to do. So there was a lot that was done in between 2016 and 2020 that's going to play into how well our campaign and the down ballot does on November 3rd. And so that gives me confidence. uh, But we have to earn every vote. And now we're doing it COVID-19, which is just kind of insane and unbelievable and and sad.
0: You mentioned uh, Kavanaugh and the effect that it had on 18. So now we have another court battle. Um, this one even closer to an election. So you know, let's be clear: if if Trump and McConnell ram through their pick, um, you know that's going to have potentially decades long worth of damage, right? Unless we, uh, you know, add to the court next year if we win back the Senate, but. So my question, as you look at the politics of it between now and November 3rd, it would seem to me an unpopular president uh, using an unpopular process, and we now know most people think this should wait and the winner of the election picket, uh, to pick someone who I think is going to be uh, viewed deeply uh, negatively uh, and will result in unpopular things being done, you know, get, eliminating a woman's right to choose, uh, you know, 130 million people losing pre-existing condition coverage, tens of millions of people losing health care, uh, you know, easier to pollute our air and a water, the list goes on and on, uh, and it's cataclysmic. But it would seem to me that um – Even though we're this close to the election, we still have voters that are undecided. We still have voters undecided about voting. And it would seem to me, as damaging as the Supreme Court pick will be, you know, after the election, it would seem to me in the next six weeks, this is something that
1: should help your ticket. Yeah, I I understand that feeling because, you know, I was just, as you said, I mentioned Kavanaugh and how it really mobilize and engage in particular women. And I think that there's been an awareness after, um after Kavanaugh of how important the Supreme court is. Um, and that's with our base, with our party. And one of the things that, you know, we know this Republicans did very, very well, which is one of the reasons Trump won in 2016 is they were able to connect, um, you know, ideology to the SCOTUS pick. And it helped them tremendously um, in 2016. And I think that, you know, I think that that's, you know, now I see the excitement on our end, uh, where people just understanding, like, what does it mean um, to to have the ability to pick uh, a judge that could, that will, could, you know, likely spend the rest of their lives on their court and change everything that we care about. Everything that we care about and how scary that is, um, depending on who has that power, right? And this plays into uh, elections have consequences. Elections have consequences. And you think, and I think you you couple that with who Ruth is. Uh, who uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, RBG, notorious RBG, you know, she was someone who put, you know, who was all about justice and fairness and equality for all, and and who fought for that not just as a judge but throughout her career and what she meant to people. And you 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 combine that. Um, with the fact that now, you know, what the Supreme Court could potentially looks like, yeah, you're going to get some energy on our side. Yeah, I think it, it could potentially help Democrats, but we have to capture that energy. We have to continue to make that contrast. We have to make sure that we let people know, continue to say everything is on the ballot, even justice, right? Justice is on the ballot on November 3rd. And so um, that's what we have to continue to do, just kind of hammer that home and tap into that energy and carry it with us.
0: Right. Well, I, I you know, I agree with that. I think, you, you know, you obviously have to turn that excitement and enthusiasm into vote. But I, I do think mm-hmm. that um, this dynamic is something, oddly, that some of these senators now who will vote to confirm may lose their seat uh, because of it. And uh, yeah. right, rightly so. So, Karine, last question. You've been very generous with your time. You yeah, mentioned that, that justice is on the ballot. So many things are on the ballot. You know, um, our health care, our economy, uh, whether we actually uh, can can move beyond this pandemic. Um, we obviously can't trust Trump even when there's a vaccine to distribute it, our alliances. But Trump is really putting the very nature of our democracy democracy. On the ballot, and it would seem to me, um, obviously, you uh, and the other leadership of the campaign, and you mentioned the thousands of organizers out in the states and all the volunteers. You're just focusing on winning enough votes, but you also have this added complication of what's Trump going to do post-election. And again, mm-hmm. my sense is if the de- win is early and decisive, um, and you know, I may live to regret these words because <laughs> maybe, maybe Republicans and even the Supreme Court will just do whatever Trump wants, but that the election will stand. But how much? Do time are you guys having to spend preparing for post-election scenarios?
1: It's a good question. I mean, I, I myself isn't, I'm not spending any time at all. I, you know, um, I see, I know there are outside groups that are, uh, and I'm glad that they are. They have, um, they have um, put up, you know, multiple scenarios and are dealing with those multiple scenarios and, and trying to figure out what does that look like and how they could be helpful. Uh, Our focus honestly, David has been purely on like winning and how do we do that? Um, and how do we like, what, you know, how do we get to to 270 and our multiple different kind of scenarios on doing that? And I, th- if we do our job, I really, truly believe this, David, if we do our draw, uh, job and win in a big way, which I think we could do um, then then I think hopefully that story won't happen. But we have to do our job first, and let others do that, right? Let others kind of focus on that. And I'm glad that's happening. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of where we have to do be is like do our jobs, make sure we're engaging with with voters, make sure we're earning those votes, make sure we get those you know folks out there early voting, make sure we continue to talk to people about what their voting plan is, uh, make sure that people's votes are protected. Um, that's going to be something else we're dealing with, you know, voter suppression. Uh, but understanding that um, we can do this, you know, but we have to, you know, it's all about the ground game, all about the ground game right now.
0: Well, Karine, thank you for what you're doing for Kamala Harris, for Joe Biden, uh, for the country and our democracy. It It is, it is uh, just hearing you talk, the challenges of of executing a presidential campaign during a pandemic um, with a candidate who's saying he may not um, uh, abide by the results with the voter suppression, where the Supreme Court nomination, uh, literally the confirmation vote could be days before the election. So these are historically uh, challenging times and, and glad that you're um, you know, supplying your time and talents to make sure that uh, we get rid of Trump and, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, take office on January 20th.
1: Yes, 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 David. Thank you so much for the conversation. Hope you and the family are doing well. And uh, hopefully I get to see you in person soon again. But thank you for the conversation. I know. Appreciate it. I know.
0: I I miss our chats in (laughs) New York. Maybe they will happen again someday. Thanks, Green.